friends um, on the assistant pastor here. It's lovely to see quite a few visitors, new faces. Um, do hang around. We'd love to, to chat to you over, over tea and coffee later. Um, let me pray as we dive into this uh, psalm together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is powerful, that your word speaks truth. We pray that the power of your word would be felt on our hearts uh, this morning, that you would reassure us with the truths that we need to be reassured by, that you would challenge us by the things that we need to be challenged by, and that, pray most of all, Father, you would enlarge our hearts and our vision of you, your Son, the Lord Jesus, and of his great and good reign. In his name we pray. Um, it's great, great to have the rooted lot in with us um, this morning. Um, when we have the rooted guys in, we uh, give you a, a few questions just to, to have in mind as we, as we go through. Um, I mean, these are for, for anyone who wants them, really. Um, here, here's a couple of questions for you guys, though. Um, three questions. Uh, firstly, uh, what are the different voices that we can hear in this psalm? What are some of the different voices we hear in the psalm as we go through? Secondly, what do we learn about God's appointed king? What do we learn about God's appointed king? And a third question, how does this psalm help us when we feel the world is out of control? How does it help when we feel the world is out of control? Maybe you've heard that phrase, the world feels like it's out of control, like a, a runaway train, or the world's just a confusing place to live in at the moment. The world has gone mad. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you've read it, maybe, maybe you've said it. I wonder what it might be that, that you find really confusing about the world at the moment. Maybe, rooted guys, what, what, what are you finding confusing about the world uh, that you're in at the moment, things at, at school, things uh, that, that are going on in the world? What are the questions that you have growing up? There's lots of things, aren't there? Freedom of speech, things uh, around that seem to be getting more, more heated. Questions about human rights, views on human biology and identity. All these things seem to be changing very quickly in our culture, uh, quicker perhaps in the last decade than, than, than any other decade before. Maybe we can ask the question, you know, is, is anyone in charge? What, what's going on? And it's not just people today, though, is it? I think if uh, we could interview people from uh, a century ago, two centuries ago, um, Christians would say there are lots of things going on in the world around them that bring them uh, concern, that they're troubled by. But it's not just now or in the past, it, it, and it's not just Christians as well, is it? I think, I think there are things that all human beings are confused by in our world. And today, there are things that all humans are unsettled by in the changes in our culture. There's been a few books coming out over the last few years that, that kind of point that way. Uh, a journalist called Douglas Murray has written a book called The Madness of Crowds. There is, a, there is this, some mad thinking he, he, he is um, kind of identifying. Or there's another book called The Righteous Mind by a sociologist, Jonathan Haidt. And the subtitle is, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. There, there is lots of confusion going on. Not just Christians, not just now. But how should we respond to 
confusion, when the world feels out of control, how can we give an account for the world that we live in? I guess that there's lots of responses. We could maybe shield ourselves um, from a bit, and there could be some value in that. But that would be pointless unless we also take the time to try and engage with the ideas that are driving the world. Understand what's, what's motivating them. But as well as engaging with those ideas, we already have a book that God has given us to help navigate his world, even when that world feels out of control. And there's lots of places we could look to uh, for, for help, but Psalm 2 gives us a window uh, on the world that we live in. Psalm 2 helps us get some clarity in the see reality through God's eye. Psalm 2, along with Psalm 1, are kind of like a, a little introduction to all of the Psalms, and they're a bit of a, a window onto the whole book. So we're both getting a window on the world, but a window onto the Psalms this morning. And as we go through the Psalm, there's sort of three scenes, three windows. We'll kind of be like walking down a corridor, have a look out a window, see from this perspective, then we'll go down and look through the next one. Three windows we'll look out from, and then kind of so what at the end. So let's look at our first window. God's world stands in rebellion. As we look out on the world, this is a window the psalm tells us we are to look through. Look out and see God's world stands in rebellion. Verses 1 to 3. Uh, one author said, this is like the history of the world squeezed into uh, seven lines. Let me read verse 1. Why do the nations conspire? Some translations, why do they rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth, they rise up. The rulers, they, they band together. What are they banding together to do? Well, they're banding together against the Lord and against his anointed. These verses, we've got a picture of mass rebellion against the Lord. I wonder, have you ever been to a demonstration, a, a protest, or even a riot? Um, when I lived in France, um, some of my, my sixth form students, they went on strike one day because there were some changes to the educational system that they were outraged by. I think that only would happen in France that 16-year-olds would camp outside the school. Um, but picture some of the images we've, we've had uh, on our screens over the last year or two. Um, cities filled with people that are outraged because of issues to do with race or political protest. Picture this idea of restlessness, the the snarky comments on social media, the uproar, the indignation, people just talking past each other. That, that is what is going on here. And what is it that, that brings people uh, together in such kind of mass protest? What, what can bring rulers and kings together here? Well, the common thing here is that they are against the Lord. We skip on a, a few hundred, maybe thousand years, and we get to the time of the Gospels. In Luke 23, we see Herod and the Jewish leaders, they work together, and these people would naturally be not working together. <laughs> They'd be enemies, but here they work together. Why? They're against him. They want him killed. What is it that brings these people together, these kings and rulers? Well, they are united in being against the Lord. At that word, plotting, the people's plot in vain. If we 
were to kind of read this with Psalm 1 as a kind of pair, it's right at the beginning, Psalm 1 verse 2, and talked about meditating on God's word. Same word that is used for meditation and plotting. But instead of meditating on God's word here in Psalm 2, they're meditating on rising up against why? What, what, what is this outrage? Well, verse 3, they tell us in their own words, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The reason for rebellion is simple. Freedom. They want to be free to make their own decisions. They compare God's rule here to wearing shackles and chains and so want to rip them off. They want when we look out on the world and feel that it is out of control Psalm 2 tells us this is why not random that God's world stands in rebellion people want freedom they want to do what they want they want to be in charge and maybe this kind of picture of rebellion that we've got here, of crowds of powerful people coming together, it, maybe, maybe it feels all kind of distant. But how often does rebellion actually look like one small action at a time? Not necessarily powerful rulers, but people just using the power they have. We've got to be not too quick to remove ourselves from this situation just because the people that it's talking about sound uh, different from, from us. These verses are a window on the world because they're also a window on the human heart. Back in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, it came in via the human heart. It was because man did not trust God to rule well. Man did not trust God to be good and gracious. So they decided to make their own rules. I wonder if we ever find ourselves in a similar position. We find ourselves feeling that, that living for God feels like wearing shackles, like wearing chains. Do we feel tempted to try and pull them off, to rebel? Maybe we want to rebel. Maybe it's something to do with, with how we use our body. Maybe it's what we do with our money, what we do with our, our thoughts, or our time. If you do, and we all do at times, then we too are standing with the world in rebellion in verses 1 to 3. Here. We too are forgetting and distrusting God's good. The first window we look through, Psalm 2, is diagnosing this confusing world, getting to the heart of the matter, that God's world stands in rebellion. And that reflects our own hearts too. But the tragic irony is that this rebellion is utterly pointless. Verse 1, the plotting is in vain. Utterly pointless. And we see why we go to our second window. So we can imagine we shuffle down, look out on the next window that we get in verses 4 to 6. It's pointless. Okay. Is that better? There we go, it's better. It's pointless because God's throne stands in heaven. God's throne stands in heaven. 
Now, after verses 1 to 3, we're probably expecting God's royal guard to kind of come out, full body armor, maybe some AK-47s, or, or maybe the angel of the Lord is just going to send an angelic army of people to deal with this uprising. But verse 4 is quite unexpected, isn't it? Verse 4, the one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. We've gone from being in in the thick, the kind of rabble of the action, to zooming way out and seeing the perspective from heaven. And we see that far from being out of control, there is a throne in the heavenly realm. And it is a throne that all and any rebellion on earth cannot touch. And the one on that throne, he looks down at this rebellion and he laughs. Now, this isn't a laughter, a kind of ha-ha, like a knock-knock joke. Um, it's, it's not sort of, oh, this is so funny. It's laughter because it is absurd. Because as soon as we get the right perspective on what is happening, this rebellion is absurd. We've seen it is vain. Luther, uh, Martin Luther, the, the reformer, said that, that, that this is, uh, rebellion is like seeing someone trying to knock down a big stone tower with a few twigs. I don't know if any of you have seen um, the, the Disney Robin Hood film with the fox growing up. Growing up, that was quite a favorite. Um, Robin Hood, he's a fox if you haven't seen it. I um, don't know why he's a fox, but he's a fox. There's a family of rabbits that he helps out. Um, also, slightly strange, Maid Marian's maid is a hen. Foxes and hens? Not sure about that. But there's a family of rabbits that he helps out. And that's also quite strange, foxes and rabbits. But one of the little boy rabbits, he idolizes Robin Hood. He thinks he is just the best. And so he, uh, he plays it being Robin Hood. He has this little hat and he has this kind of uh, wooden sword. I think we've got, there he is, his wooden sword. And he plays around uh, as if he can kind of defeat the sheriff of Nottingham and, and kind of win everything uh, back. But when you look at it, I mean, it is laughable, isn't it? It is laughable when you think of his size and his strength. It is absurd. But, but this is the idea. We are to look at this rebellion and, and think it's like this picture. Think of it. Man who needs sleep and food, who can bleed, who can die. Man who's dependent upon God for breathing is in rebellion against the Almighty. Rebellion against the one who doesn't sleep, who can't be wounded, who is immortal, who doesn't need energy or depend on anything. It is absurd. Verse 4 tells us, when confusion strikes us, when war and terror are all that we hear of and all that fills our horizon, the throne of heaven is not empty. And however powerful men may seem to us, their opposition to the Lord is laughable. And we need to hear that laughter, don't we? We need to hear it rise above the sound of rebellion, which is so often the noise that we hear most loudly. We need to hear that, but but we've got to confess it's hard to hear it as well, isn't it? It is hard, because we can't always see it with our eyes. We need to see it through the eyes of the psalm, through the eyes of faith. So God's throne stands in heaven. That is a precious window on the world. But it's a precious window for for another reason, because he doesn't just laugh. 
verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. We might feel unsettled about God being described this way. But isn't it right that God is angry with everything that is wrong in the world? And, and what he says next is quite surprising. What are the words that, that terrify, that rebuke? I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. As the rulers and, and kings of the earth try and be kings themselves, God is going to extend his heavenly throne by installing his own king on Zion, the city that would become Jerusalem. God responds not by giving them the king that they want, which is themselves, but by giving them the king they need. But we've got to be careful here, because how do we know that this isn't just one bad government being replaced by something else that's going to go rotten as well? And uh, the Christian uh, writer, Christopher Ash, says something really helpful here. He says we need to remember that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they go together. In Psalm 1, we read of a blessed man, this person who delights in the law of the Lord, a person who trusts in God's blueprint for the world, someone who loves God and loves his good rule. And Psalm 2 describes God's good ruler. And that means a Psalm 2 kind of king has to be a Psalm 1 kind of man. Now, this isn't a new idea. Moses has told us this way back in Deuteronomy 17 about what a good king would look like. Let me read these verses. Some of them will come up on the screen. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, God's law, taken from the Levitical priests. This copy of the law is to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And this king, this is interesting, not consider himself better than fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Psalm 2 king has to be a Psalm 1 man. But if you know the story of Israel, the kings that we see are very rarely Psalm 1 type of kings. And even when they approached it, they weren't perfect. Many were absolutely dreadful. But after years of waiting, there came another king to Zion, a king who would be crowned with thorns on a holy mountain, Jesus Christ. The king who delighted in God's law perfectly. He was the Psalm 1 king all the days of his life. But again, this window on the world gives us a window into our hearts. What kind of king do we want? Is the king that we want the king that we need? How does the Lord Jesus match up with that, the king that God gives us? Well, to answer that, we're going to move on to our third window as we learn more about this king. So imagine a little shuffle along, another view on the world, the psalmist tells us that God's king stands decreed. God's king stands decreed. In these verses, we now hear the king speaking. 
So, and he's reporting back to us the words that the Lord has told him. It's a little bit confusing. The king is speaking, but the words that he's saying are what God has said to him. Verse 7, he says, I, that's the king, will proclaim the Lord's decree, the words that God has spoken. Now, that's a bit of a funny word, decree. Um, if you're like me, it's not one that you use in everyday conversation. A decree is something that is unchangeable. It has a kind of force of law about it. And a decree from God has the authority to write all human history. He's decreed it, and so it will be done. It can't be reverted. It can't be kind of changed by a revote or a referendum or anything like that. And here we see God's decree is our third window on the world. And wonderfully, it tells us things are not random. Things are not out of control, but history has an author and a direction. What is that direction? It is that God's king will rule God's world. God promises it to his king here because this king is unique among all the other kings on the earth. He is unique from those kings we saw in verses 1 to 3. Um, three quick ways that, that, that these verses tell us uh, the uniqueness of this king. He's, he's the legitimate king. But verse 7, he said to me, that's the Lord, said to me, the king, you are my son. Today I have become your father. A bit like the relationship between a father and a son, Israel's king has a special relationship with God. And throughout the Old Testament, this kind of son word isn't always biology, but, but a, a title when it comes to king, the anointed one. So we see God's king here, he's the rightful king. He's the rightful heir. He's not one who takes the throne by, by force or by cunning, but by divine appointment. And verse 8 shows what that special relationship looks like. He's invited to pray. And God says, I will answer your, your prayers. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. He's a legitimate king. But that verse 8, secondly, he's the universal king. The ends of the earth will be his possession. Not a, a kind of middle-ish plot of, of land in the Middle East. There won't be any border disputes because there won't be any borders. It will be the ends of the earth. These nations who are plotting and raging, they will be under his rule as well because God promises it. And if the whole world belongs to God, then it makes sense, doesn't it, that God's king will be ruler to the ends of the earth. So he's a universal king, but he's also an authoritative king. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. I wonder if you've ever smashed a plate or maybe during the washing up, kind of picking a glass and then you whack it against the tap and suddenly there's glass everywhere and you can't see it because of the foam. It's very easily done, isn't it? That is how easy God will find confronting those who rise up against him. Like, Smashing a plate, screwing up a piece of paper. Easily done. No harder than that. Now these words might sound quite vicious, but remember the rebellion in verse 1 to 3. We, we are already told that not everyone is going to come to God with open arms. Not everyone is going to receive this king with joy. 
And so this king has the power to confront all opposition and all evil. He doesn't rule because he's had an 100% approval rating or he's got a perfect vote, but because he is God's man, because he's the legitimate king, he is therefore the universal king and he is the one with authority. And this isn't a reign of terror. Remember, the Psalm 2 king is a Psalm 1 man who is righteous, who delights in the law of the Lord. That is someone who we can trust to use his power well, who will not be overcome and who will bring safety and justice without tyranny. So this third window that God's king stands decreed tells us that history is not being blown about by the wind. It's so easy to, to think that, to feel that. But that God's king, the legitimate king, the universal king, the authoritative king, he stands decreed and that God has promised this world to his king but who will this king be this psalm was probably written in the reign of king david Uh, they don't know exactly but it was probably used with some connection to when kings were uh, kings had their coronation Uh, it may have been spoken or it may have just been uh, something that a psalm that everyone knew was about israel's king Um, but it has some sort of aspiration for what their reign would look like but again all through the old testament we wait for such a king someone whose reign is universal someone who uses authority well but even the best ones fell short you can imagine god's people decade after decade century after century they read this psalm they look at their king and they think you know is is the king ever going to come But one day, John the Baptist, he baptizes Jesus. And when he baptizes him, the clouds open up and we hear echoes of Psalm 2. Across the skies, these words are announced to everyone. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the son that the psalm is talking about. He is the psalm to king. Jesus is the one whose rule is legitimate, whose rule is universal, whose authority is unchallenged. As we look at the life of Jesus, we sang that song, Jerusalem, earlier. We see one who uses his power in service and sacrifice as he is crucified on Zion, God's holy hill, for a world that is in rebellion against him. And a king who is victorious, who conquers death and sin by going through death for our sake. But just a quick tangent. If God's decree is filled in Jesus, what does the today in verse 7 mean? Because in the Old Testament, you read today, I've become your father. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you've kind of got it happening in front of you. Um, They were actually crowned on a day. Jesus, he's one with the Father since eternity. If he's God, hasn't he always been king? Well, in in a sense, yes. Let me just read a couple of verses from the New Testament that, that pick this up. See if you can spot the common events. Acts 13, Paul is giving a sermon. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he's fulfilled for us, their children. How's he fulfilled it? By raising up Jesus. And where does he go? 
as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again in Romans 1 verse 4, Jesus, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God in power. That same word again. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Something special happens at the resurrection. The Son has always been the Son since eternity, but at the resurrection, Jesus, God the Son incarnate, is appointed God's Son in power. He steps into the human kingly role in a way unlike a human king before that we've been waiting for. And we, we see that in Philippians 2. Just Johnny read a bit of it earlier. It carries on that that after his crucifixion and resurrection, God exalted him, that is the Lord Jesus, to the highest place. He gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a universal king, isn't it? So when the world feels out of control, This is the window that we must look through, that God's king stands decreed. And that's where the tangent is important, because unlike the psalmist who could read uh, verses 7 to 9 and and kind of see an aspiration, we see the king Jesus who is resurrected and glorified. We know that his reign has already begun and that when he returns, all will acknowledge it. Revelation 11 says, talks about a day when the kingdom of the world, that that world that stands in rebellion, will become the kingdom of our Lord, the throne that stands in heaven, and the kingdom of his Christ, the king who is decreed. So three windows on the world. God's world stands in rebellion. God's throne stands in heaven. God's king stands decreed. But how are we to respond? Well, the last three verses, kiss the sun, kiss the sun. The psalmist now turns back. It's like we've walked through our three windows and we're we're stepping outside into the world. We have to decide how are we going to live in this world after what we've seen. The psalmist gives them a list of pleas. Consider what you've heard. Be wise, he says. Be warned. Serve the Lord. Celebrate his rule. Celebrate his rule, not your own rule. Kiss the sun. When a a kind of Near Eastern king would kind of report the subjugation of of a king that he'd conquered to some other people, maybe over a feast or something, he would say that that ruler had kissed his feet. That was a way of kind of acknowledging that that one had had victory over the other. So if, for example, um, Johnny and I were, were ancient rulers fighting over the city of Winchester and I conquered him and wanted everyone to know, I might casually kind of slip in over maybe a Redeemer weekend away, that uh, Johnny Clifton, king of Badger Farm, came and kissed my feet. And that would mean that, that he'd utterly submitted to me and my armies. Obviously, I have loads of armies. The psalmist takes this idea and applies it to our relationship with God's king. He says, kiss the sun, submit to him serve him change your posture from rebellion to reverence why well just a couple of things to close 
because there is a danger to avoid. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Remember, for God's king, rebellion can be dealt with as easily as smashing a glass, crumpling a piece of paper. So we need to be aware that there is a danger to avoid. But that doesn't mean that God's king delights in being angry. He is giving time to respond now to those hearing the psalm, and he is patiently giving all in this world time to respond before Jesus returns. And when he says his wrath can flare up in a moment, I don't think that means he's kind of hot-tempered. But rather, when judgment comes, it will happen quickly. It will be too late to do anything about it. So, hear these words, be wise, be warned, kiss the sun. And if that window on the world is a window on our hearts, then we need to hear those words too. Will we be wise? Will we be warned? Have we kissed the sun? A danger to avoid, but there is also a joy to experience. Celebrate his rule with trembling. We rejoice because the government of Jesus is the one that we need. This Psalm 2 king is a Psalm 1 man who rules with righteousness over the world and in our hearts. And his eternal kingdom will be a place of eternal blessing. Free from suffering and sin. But we celebrate with trembling. Not because we don't trust him, but because of who he is. He is good and gracious towards us. He's a king who has done everything possible to bring us into his kingdom. His righteous life, his sacrificial death to make us right with God. But he is still the immortal God. He is still the one that we tremble before. Apart from Christ, we are without a refuge from the storms of life, from the wrath of God at a world in rebellion. But the psalmist tells us, in those last verses, that blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is our joy to experience. Will we take refuge in him? God's world stands in rebellion. God's throne is standing in heaven. God's king stands decreed. So, how will we respond? Kiss the sun. Let's reflect for a moment and then pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these precious words. We thank you that these words help us to see the world through your eyes. Lord, we pray that as we head out into the the working week, that you would help us engage with the world around us through the truths of this psalm. Help us to cling to them. Help us to hear the laughter of God when all we can hear and see is rebellion. Help us to see the majesty and greatness of our perfect King, the Lord Jesus. Help us to kiss the Son, to submit our lives fully to him, to avoid the danger and to know the deep joy of communion with you forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.